I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get your calls. It's a Tuesday, and it appears that Joe Biden has tried to sneak Hunter Biden into the White House. And I want to give you a couple of thoughts on that in just a moment. And I also want to tell you about the latest celebration of the Biden administration. Joe Biden is celebrating that he has finalized his five-year offshore drilling program. And apparently it makes Joe very, very happy. It ought to make the rest of us scared. And I'll tell you why. Because it means less energy for America. But first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. Glad to be with you on a Tuesday and always glad to take your calls. We'll get you involved in a little honestly provocative talk radio and the best conversation and talk journalism right here at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you happen to be a naysayer and disagree with me, we'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and consider voting in our Twitter poll, although... I think we're going to have to change the name. I mean, I still call it Twitter, but it's also X. So we could call it the poll on X. If Joe Biden will not guard our borders, should states enforce laws for them? And let me tell you what Texas has done. Yesterday, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, signed three new bills into law. And one of them makes illegal entry from a foreign country into the Lone Star State. It makes it a state crime. The Texas law is said to be the first of its kind in America. And, of course, they're expecting a court challenge. They were expecting that yesterday to say, well, that's unconstitutional. I think that's hogwash, pure, unadulterated hogwash. Why is it unconstitutional? Well, already the American Crooks and Lawyers Union, the ACLU, has already filed suit. Didn't even take them 24 hours to rush into court and challenge this law. But what Governor Abbott says about why he did this and why the Texas legislature did this, he says four years ago, the United States had the fewest border crossings, illegal crossings, in 40 years because of four specific policies implemented by Donald Trump. And then after Joe Biden took over and took all four of those Trump policies and he completely gutted them. One of them was remain in Mexico, if you want an example, saying if you want to claim asylum or refugee status in America, you can claim it. But while we're deciding whether or not you're entitled to it, and 95% of those who apply for asylum or refugee status are turned down because they don't, they don't meet the requirements of the law. Well, Joe Biden got rid of remain in Mexico and got rid of a number of other policies, and now... From going from the lowest illegal border crossings in 40 years under Donald Trump to the single highest number of illegal alien entries to America in America's history, bar none. Now consider that. So they passed a law, said, yes, it's, it's you're breaking federal law when you enter the United States illegally, as the illegal aliens have to the tune of 9 million illegals in the last three, almost three years under Joe Biden. Um, 
If Joe Biden won't guard the borders, should states enforce the law for them? I'd say yes to that. You can vote any way you like at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined the group. You should, too. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better. Better for you and better for America. In yesterday's poll, I ask you this. Should Christians who don't endorse LGBTQ policies be forbidden to be foster parents? And if you think that's crazy, it's exactly the situation that a young lady named Jessica Bates found herself in. Christian, mother of five, wanted to adopt two kids out of foster care. That is a worthy and laudable thing to do. And what did they tell her? You can't do it unless you guarantee that you will embrace the LGBTQ philosophy, whether it conflicts with your Christian beliefs or not, and it did conflict with her Christian beliefs, so she said no. She is now in court, and let's hope that she wins that one. I said, should Christians who won't endorse LGBTQ be forbidden to be foster parents? 93% of you voted in our X poll, or the poll on X, whatever we decide to name it after Twitter's name change. 93% of you joined me in a no vote. Only 7% of you voted yes for that craziness. Now, let me get to the policy that Joe Biden is celebrating now. So the White House announces its final five-year offshore drilling program, I think what they want to do is try to lock this in going forward because I think even they know that Joe Biden is not going to be president of the United States after January of 2025. They know to a fair certainty he's going to lose in November and whoever the Democrats put up to replace him, because I think the DNC will actually have to replace Joe Biden between now and then, it ain't going to be Kamala Hamas and it's probably not going to be Gavin Newsom and they really don't have anybody else to run. So what does Joe do? He has put together a program that claims to have the fewest oil and gas lease sales in American history. The rules were first proposed in late September. This is from our friend John Solomon at Just the News. The final program allows for three oil and gas lease sales in the Gulf of Mexico. They'll be held in 2025, 27, and 29. Oil companies will have one last opportunity to buy leases And there will be no more lease sales until 2025 under the plan. The administration designed it, designed it to allow for the minimum in oil and gas leases in the Gulf. That's where they're finding an awful lot of that oil because they want to meet the Inflation Reduction Act, that cockamamie bill that Congress passed, in requirements for offshore wind, which, by the way, On the east coast of America, where it's tracking a little bit ahead of the west coast and other places in America, offshore wind is turning into a giant train wreck financially and otherwise. So Joe Biden is trying, he's got America by the throat uh, energy-wise, and he's trying to choke off all of our air, all of our fuel. He's trying to say we're going to have the least oil and gas. He doesn't believe that America is still going to be using oil a decade from now. He has said so out loud. If you don't believe me, that's what he's doing. And then the second question, as you consider where we're going politically in the next 12 months or so, do you feel safe in Joe Biden's America? Well, there's a brand new Gallup poll. Guess what? 28% of Americans say they say they worry frequently or occasionally that they will be murdered. Now, that is 
near to a record high for the United States. They did a good size Gallup poll. You can estimate the point of view of Americans by polling about a thousand people if you get the poll results the right way. Half of adults, 50%, say they worry that their car will be stolen or broken into. 37% say their worry is getting mugged. 32% are concerned about getting attacked while driving, you know, carjacking. And the vast majority of Americans, 72%, say they're worried that they're going to fall victim to identity theft. That is the reality in Joe Biden's America. And then you tell me. How in the world is that guy going to even pretend to have a presidential campaign with a population that is going broke from inflation, getting choked off from energy supply, and is scared, at least a quarter of them, that they're going to get murdered any day of the week? Coming up in a moment, we'll talk about Iranian jihadism with our friend Frank Gaffney from the Center for Security Policy. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Because you can't get enough, Lars. Podcast every show at LarsLarson.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. we got to talk about the Houthis and about Iranian jihadism. And the perfect person to talk about that is our friend Frank Gaffney, founder of the Center for Security Policy, author most recently of the new number one best-selling book on Amazon for its category, The Indictment, Prosecuting the Chinese Communist Party and Friends for Crimes Against America, China, and the World. Frank, welcome back. Thank you, Lars. Why... Why would the Biden administration delist this supremacist group, the Sharia supremacist group known as the Houthi rebels? They did it right out of the gate uh, when Joe Biden entered the White House uh, for, I think, the same reason that it's been doing an awful lot of other things that don't make much sense. And that is they've sought to uh, placate to accommodate, to appease the government of Iran at every turn. And the Houthi rebels, of course, as they're called, are really just proxies for that government. They've been engaged in war against our friends, uh, such as they are, in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates for quite some time. Uh, They've now taken up attacking uh, shipping, uh, of the uh, the southern uh, sort of uh, literals of the Middle East, uh, notably in the Red Sea, the Mandelbeb, and the the Suez Canal are all now being affected. And the purpose of having them on the terrorism list was that you can treat them as what they are, which is terrorists. They're they're Sharia supremacists. They're jihadists. But call them what you will. They engage in terror, and they should be treated as such. And the administration not only took them off that list as an effort to uh, curry favor with the Iranian mullahs, uh, but it has kept them off the list, despite the fact that um, 
They've been attacking Israel itself. Uh, they've been attacking uh, Israeli shipping and now other shipping. And in fact, sent some missiles the way of uh, one of our naval combatants in the region. So uh, it's, it should be game on. But as far as the administration is concerned, uh, they're apparently uh, still wrestling with the question of whether or not they should put them back on the terrorism list. Of course, they should, but they should also be punishing them for what they're doing. I mean, is there some recognition at the White House that they have been doing everything they can do for Iran for the last almost three years now, and they've got exactly nothing for it? Or, and maybe I'm overstating that, has Joe Biden managed to get anything of what he wants from the Iranians after doing all these favors for the mad mullahs? Well, it's a good question. Uh, did he want an invasion of Israel? I, I would uh, did he this. want the uh, the Hezbollah forces uh, in South Lebanon to be threatening the mass destruction of Israel with the missiles that the Iranians have given them? Did he want, you know, the Houthis to now be attacking both Israel, as I say, and these ships in the region? I, I don't know. If that's what he wanted, that's what he's gotten. Did Did he want them to continue to pursue their nuclear weapons program? Again, I don't know. He says he says not, but you bet they have. And and do they have a nuclear weapon now as a result of these accommodations? I don't know. But if they don't, it's it's a mystery to me how it could possibly be. Because Lars, I think we talked about this in the past, but you know, it took us three years to go from inventing the idea of a nuclear weapon to dropping. Uh, two of them on Japan, uh, yep. atomic weapons, they were called at the time. Uh, these guys have been beavering away at getting nuclear weapons for the better part of three decades, at least, if not longer. And they and have the advantage all of, the of all the information we've learned and since know-how then. And, yeah, yeah, and help from all kinds of uh, allies of theirs. So uh, it's unimaginable to me that they don't actually have nuclear weapons. But if that's what Joe Biden wanted, that's what he's gotten. If he wanted something other than all of that... He hasn't gotten anything to show for it at all, I'm afraid. No, no, but but there must be some recognition at the White House that pursuing these policies and doing these things, delisting the Houthi rebels, uh, sending tens of billions to the Iranians, either through sanction relief or unfrozen assets, that all of those things are going to lead somewhere really bad, and they haven't led anywhere good at all. So what are they going to do? When when the the folks that they've been doing all these favors for start to, you know, a, attack our ally Israel again or create more trouble or more attacks on shipping, how are they going to answer those questions? Or do they just expect the, you know, the legacy media is simply going to carry their water and, and try to write it off as well? You know, that's that's not Joe's fault because it really does look like it's Joe's fault. Look. Of course it's Joe's fault. And, and Lars, let me just add a little further texture to this, if I can. Uh, and, and I think the short answer is, you know, they're expecting people to cover for them. But there's, there's some another thing that's going on here that's really troubling. Um, the uh, Biden administration had as its top envoy to Iran a guy by the name of uh, Rob Malley. Rob Malley uh, was a, a champion for Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran, of course, for years. He's, he's now been sort of uh, shunted aside because he evidently engaged in some kind of, well, 
misconduct with respect to classified information. Uh, my suspicion is it was Israeli-provided intelligence, which he turned over to the Iranians. But whatever it was, he, he's now kind of out of the bus. But get this. There are a couple of people, at least, uh, in a group that's been called the uh, Iran Experts uh, Initiative, I think, that are people who have been tied directly to the Iranian regime and are now, thanks to Rob Malley, working in government positions, sensitive government positions in the United States. One of them is a gal by the name of Ariane Tabatabai. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that as the Persians do, but she's the chief of staff for the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations and Low-Intensity Conflict. That's a role in which she would have access to all kinds of information about our special operators and about our plans and about, you know, the uh, intelligence we have on Iran and so on. And you know, questions were raised about what on earth is going on here. And uh, the administration has simply decided, well, never mind. We're just going to continue to have her doing whatever it is she's doing there <laughs> for the Iranians, perhaps, as well as uh, these uh, guys in the Pentagon. I, I'm really shocked by the magnitude of the betrayal of our national interests that has taken place under the, uh, well, I call it the Obama-Biden 3.0 administration, Lars. And but that's what particularly it is. with respect to the Iranians, it's just absolutely stupefying. Well, and I and think anybody looking at it would say the same. Let me ask you this. Is it possible the Iranians, since I'm not going to say they're stupid, they're evil, but they're not necessarily stupid, are saying the Biden administration is doing so many things for us right now. Let's not upset the apple cart right now. Let's play this to the end, probably the end of Joe's first and only term as president. Then he gets beaten in November or he's off, you know, shuffled off the stage by the DNC. And only then will the Iranians use what they've got, other than the funding efforts they're doing for Hamas and the Houthis and everything else. They, they, if they upset the apple cart now, they face possibly Joe Biden saying, well, now I have to do something. So but he, they'll just prime these people for the time after Biden, because I think there is going to be a time after Biden after this fall. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> well. But Joe, look, Lars, uh, the, the bottom line for me is. This administration, from day one, and to some extent, I think it has to be said, the Obama-Biden administrations 1.0 and 2.0 as well, humiliated themselves before the Iranians in the interest of trying to get some kind of nuclear deal from them, uh, in the first instance under Obama and now under Biden. And the reality is that the, the Iranian regime has taken our measure. They have nothing but contempt for this administration and its predecessor. They are exploiting to the hilt, uh, including, by the way, attacking our personnel yep. in Iraq and Syria. Fortunately, people haven't been killed, but they have been harmed. They've been wounded. And there's been practically no response, no retaliation, no cost extracted. And therefore, you only embolden further. Absolutely right. That's Frank Gaffney from the Center for Security Policy. Back in a moment, I'll give you the latest breaking news from Colorado about the ballot and Donald Trump. That's next. The Lars Larson Show.
all men and the people who love Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google. Yeah, he's everywhere. The Lars Larson Podcast. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. This story literally just landed a few minutes ago while I was talking to Frank Gaffney. But welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. And uh, I'll give you an opportunity to comment on it, but let me tell you what just came down. From the state of Colorado, the Colorado Supreme Court in the last few minutes has determined, get this, that former President Donald Trump engaged in an insurrection against the United States on January 6, 2021. You know, the so-called Capitol riot. And he was therefore ineligible to appear on the 2024 Colorado presidential ballot. Now, I'll point out at this point, I'm citing the reporting, basically every main news organization in America is reporting this now. Uh, but this is coming specifically from our friends at Just the News. That's John Solomon's outfit, although this reporter is Ben Whedon, who we've actually talked to on the show. Trump, as they point out, has fought back a litany of lawsuits seeking to remove him from both the presidential and primary ballots in multiple states, mo- most of which have insisted he is ineligible to run. And the argument they use that we've talked about at length on this program is the 14th Amendment argument. Now, that the 14th Amendment did a lot of things, but one of it was one of the things it did was it said that those who are engaged in the Civil War who had clearly engaged in an insurrection against the United States because we had a civil war. I mean, the South tried to break off from the North. So they wrote into the 14th Amendment that if you engage in an insurrection against the United States while holding high office, that you were then barred from appearing on the ballot and running for re-election. The Colorado Supreme Court had agreed to hear this case just a bit ago this month in December. But... Um, Trump, uh, they, they, the, the argument goes this way, that Trump engaged in insurrection by inciting the January 6th riot, but they allowed him to remain on the primary ballot, claiming that the 14th Amendment did not apply to the presidency. The decision made the state the first in the nation to remove Trump from the ballot, setting up a near-certain Supreme Court battle over the matter ahead of the election. The court in Colorado has also put a stay on its order until January the 4th of next year, just a couple of weeks from now. Now, let me give you a couple of thoughts on this. Number one, if you've read the speech that Donald Trump gave on January 6th, and I have, if you watched the speech that Donald Trump gave on that day, and I have, if you looked at the FBI's conclusion, having investigated, did Donald Trump commit insurrection? Did he attempt an overthrow of the United States government? The answer would be, no from watching the speech, no from reading the speech, and no from even Joe Biden's Department of Justice and the FBI. But see, the Democrats are, are, are panicked at this point. They're panicked. They realize we have an absolutely failing president in Joe Biden, and nobody's even sure how much farther he's going to be able to go, because on almost a daily basis, he seems to degrade seriously. He's barely able to know where he is, to carry on a conversation, to answer questions to the point. I know some of you are going to say, well, you're being unfair to Joe Biden. You're overstating the case. When a president of the United States 
cannot stand in front of reporters, listen to a question, and form his own answer. When the staff of Joe Biden has to have him read from prepared material in front of him just to answer questions, when reporters, and I don't know for the life of me why reporters are going along with this nonsense, because when I was a reporter, I would frequently have people ask, well, Lars, which questions are you going to ask in the interview? And my standard answer then and now is reporters don't give the questions ahead of time. Now, if somebody says, well, Lars, you want to come over and talk to me, what do you want to talk about? Have I said, I want to talk about how the economy is going. I'll tell you the general subject matter. I'm not, not interested in sandbagging people, uh, but I will not limit myself to questions. That means that when you see Joe Biden listen to a question, that is supposed to be a question from that reporter the president did not get ahead of time. But apparently Joe Biden's people are being given the questions ahead of time to such a degree that they're able to sit down and write an answer to a question Joe Biden hasn't heard yet. That's what his staff is being allowed to do. And that's how he's allowed to have answers written out for him to questions that in theory should never go to any politician before the interview. Now, let me read you part of what the court decision from Colorado is. Again, it came down just minutes ago. The Colorado Supreme Court has now ordered that Donald Trump be booted off the 2024 presidential ballot. That one is going to absolutely go to the U.S. Supreme Court. Here's what the court said. We do not reach these conclusions lightly. We are mindful of the magnitude and weight of the questions now before us. We are likewise mindful of our solemn duty to apply the law without fear or favor. What a load of hogwash. And without being swayed by public reaction to the decisions that the law mandates we reach. They're coming to a conclusion that giving a speech on that day caused the insurrection that Donald Trump delivered such a barn burner of a speech. And by the way, we'll pull up the sound bites in the days ahead because I know we're going to be talking about this. But when Donald Trump specifically said in the speech, let's go up on Capitol Hill and let's peacefully and patriotically tell the Congress what we see in this election. That's not an incitement to riot. That's not an encouragement to commit insurrection. But what's happening is Democrats in America at both the state and federal level are doing everything they possibly can to wipe Trump off the ballot. And the only reason they're doing that is because they know to a fair certainty Donald Trump will get the Republican nomination. Donald Trump will run in November. Donald Trump will win. That's why they're increasingly panicked. And I warned you a couple of months ago, I said, look, as they get closer and closer to the election, now just about 10 months away, they're going to become increasingly desperate because they figured, well, we can take out Trump with a bunch of indictments. So they throw down one bunch of indictments and then they throw down a second and then a third and then a fourth. The total number of indictments against Donald Trump right now, 91. And yet most of those cases, you can watch them fail from the outside. You can watch what happens in the court decisions, and you're watching them fail. If the Democrats were certain that Donald Trump would not be able to beat all those charges against him, most of which are for engaging in free speech, as this decision is about free speech. Can you imagine being so desperate as a political party that you say, 
if that guy runs, we have to take him out before the American people have an opportunity to vote for him. Because if we let the American people vote for him, he's going to win. They know that. And you can say, well, Lars, you're just a pro-Trump guy. You're saying that because you're pro-Trump. No, I'm telling you, this is evidence that the Democrats know the election is lost already 10 months out from the actual vote. They know they've already lost it. So they have to find some other way to stop Donald Trump. And then imagine this, an America where Americans don't choose their president, electoral college does not to electoral voters do not choose the president the president will be chosen by the decisions of unelected judges or even in the case of elected judges judges that are immune to your point of view or what you want as an american and these judges have decided we will take that choice away from americans all this hogwash about oh we understand the weighty meaning of what we're doing and the awesome responsibility of what we have to do what a load of garbage. They know what they're doing. They know that they have to find some way to stop Donald Trump, and this is one of them. And what's really frightening is there are more violent possibilities as well, and you should be aware of that as we head forward. I hate to say it, but I, I think they will stop at nothing to stop Donald Trump. Coming up in a moment, we'll talk about America's crazy national debt. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll or X poll if you prefer. If Joe Biden won't guard our borders, should states enforce their own law against illegal aliens the way Texas has done? I would say yes to that question. You can vote any way you like. You'll find it at Lars Larson Show on X or Twitter. You'll also find it at LarsLarson.com. Now, it's a pleasure to welcome back Chris Edwards, who's an economic scholar at the Cato Institute. Chris, good to have you. Hey, thanks for having me, Lars. Uh, I want to ask you this. I, I realize we're going to have to talk, I guess, macro level at the beginning. $33 trillion in uh, U.S. debt at this point, uh, maybe 34 uh, by the time we finish the conversation, uh, tens or hundreds of trillions of other unfunded mandates uh, that are also out there to be counted. Is anybody trying to bring this thing under control, least of which is the Congress? There very few of them. It's extremely scary. What people need to understand is we are at a unique point in American history. Never in our entire 250 or so year history has the government debt anywhere been anywhere near this high as a share of the economy, with the one exception of World War II. And, you know, World War II, the debt spiked, but then we quickly paid it back after the war ended. The problem now is we're rising above the World War II speaking, uh, spike in debt, but no one has any, you know, uh, no one in Congress has any serious proposals to do anything about it to even slow the increase. It's an extremely dangerous situation. And because we're the largest economy in the world, if we, we generate, you know, a massive crash and crisis from our government debt, it's going to take the whole world economy down. It's an extremely irresponsible and dangerous situation we're in. I want to take us outside of the United States. Let's go to Argentina for just a second, because I'm curious. Uh, the, the new president there, um, uh, I don't know enough about him to, I mean, I'm in, initially enthused 
with the idea of a guy who says, I'll take the number of government ministries, what we would call agencies, and just cut them in half and shut them down. I think Argentina is in much worse shape than we are. But what about that kind of idea? Could could we make a big difference by taking much of what the government does uh, and just say, OK, we're going to decide. And uh, my favorite way to approach any budget, including my own household budget, is say, what are the things I need to have and what are the things that are nice to have? We keep the need to haves and we chop as many of the nice to haves as we have to to balance things out. Congress could do that if they chose, couldn't they? Absolutely. And the thing you have to remember is, you know, United States has a federal structure. We have a government in Washington that's far too big, but each of the 50 states, like the original design, they have their own government. And if uh, they want to run their own K-12 programs or housing programs or welfare programs, they can do so as much as they want to. The federal government doesn't limit the taxing power of the states. Um, If New York wants to tax a lot and have big welfare programs, it can do so. In my view, is there's no reason for the federal government to be in these hundreds of different areas and funding state and local activities like the K-12 schools or housing programs or welfare programs or urban transit programs or high-speed rail. Why is the federal government subsidizing high-speed rail in California? Californians think that's a good idea. God bless them, they can do it. I think it's an absolutely ridiculous project. And there's no way the people and the taxpayers in the 49 other states ought to be funding it. So this is the general principle. You know, get the spending out of Washington. If the states want to fund these activities, they can do it. But I think people in different parts of the country have different values and, you know, different, you know, beliefs about taxation and the like. And that's okay. Diversity is a, is a, is a, is a good thing. We should, the states should go their own way with their own policies. Laboratories of democracy. I mean, Chris mentioned that le- the high-speed rail nonsense. Correct me if I'm wrong. They've spent something like I think the original nine billion plus little tranches that added up to another four or five billion. They've spent all that, fit maybe fourteen, fifteen billion, and they haven't built a single mile of high-speed rail in better than a decade, have they? No, it's it's ridiculous. The the overall projected costs now are over a hundred billion, and they seem to have, don't even seem to be planning to you know to connect the two major cities, L.A. and San Francisco. They're they're running this. They're building this system in the middle of the state where there's a lot fewer people. It doesn't make any sense. There's another very good example of this. Dozens and dozens of cities across America have built these light, uh, these light rail light urban rail. transit lines that are a complete waste of money. They're far more inefficient than uh, bus systems. If you want to help low-income folks get to their jobs, if an efficient bus system is a way to do it, not these ridiculous luxury uh, rail systems. But they built the rail systems because the federal government's dangled the money. All of these cities that are building the rail systems, they're doing it because the feds are giving the money for it. And that's the problem with federal government uh, intervention. It, it induces the states to do things that they would otherwise you know, not do, that they would otherwise believe is, are really stupid and irresponsible. And by the way, Chris, I'm probably telling you stuff you already know, but I'd, I'd go even further. I don't even think a bus system makes sense, and I'll tell you why. Uh, some friends of mine who do the numbers on some of this stuff say, you know, which one is more efficient, a modern automobile today, like an Uber or a Lyft, or the bus system, and you calculate per lane or per passenger mile. And they say because most of these systems run largely empty most of the day outside of rush hours, the car is actually more efficient than the bus. 
And you say, then why are we running all these empty buses around? And I, I agree. I, a lot of there's a huge. I see that too. Where I live, there's a, a bus station nearby. I see empty buses all the time. Actually, let's let's look back a little bit in history. Before the 1960s, nearly all bus systems uh, in American cities were run by the private sector. Yep. They only became uh, they only became uh, government owned because the federal government in the 60s started dangling money out to cities and saying, "Hey, if you nationalize your bus system." We'll give you subsidies. Private companies, we're not giving any subsidies. We'll only give the subsidies to the to uh, if the if the bus systems are government owned. That's why all bus systems in America now are government owned. And by the way, that's the same as American airports. In the first few decades of American airports in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, about half of all American airports were private. The airport, two airports in D.C. here were private. But the federal government dangled money. It said, hey, we'll give money to government-owned airports, but not private-owned airports. And that was the beginning of the end of private airports in America, which is very sad. So the federal government, by dangling money, does a huge amount of damage. I think they do, too. And frankly, I'd sooner subsidize Lyft and Uber and other ride shares and say, if you're a poor person, you qualify. OK, I don't like subsidies in general, but if you had to replace the transit system, I think you could replace it with ride share starting tomorrow if they wanted to do it and save a tremendous amount of money, have door to door service that would actually be more attractive and would attract more riders than the current system. Chris, thanks for the work you do at the Cato Institute. Glad to be with you on a Tuesday. And by the way, Merry Christmas in advance to all of you. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out my Instagram feed, and you can always tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. I know. Lars. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Tuesday, and the news that broke less than an hour ago is that Donald Trump has now been barred by the Colorado Supreme Court from appearing on the presidential primary ballot in Colorado next year. Now, that is sure to be appealed. It'll likely have to go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And this is just the latest example of election interference by the Democrats, by their allies, using every means possible to try to go after Donald Trump. But what they've said is the Colorado Supreme Court ruled late today that they're going to rely on the 14th Amendment and the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment to say we won't put Donald Trump on the primary ballot in the state of Colorado. Other states have seen similar efforts. Um, the fact is they know. 
that Donald Trump is going to win. They know that they can't beat him with the American people. They can't beat him at the polls. So they got to try to beat him in the courts. And I have a feeling this is going to be overturned. In any case, I wanted to give you my initial thoughts on that because oftentimes we don't have a lot of breaking news during this program, but that has come down within the last hour. Donald Trump has now been barred from the Colorado presidential primary ballot. And I find it outrageous that this kind of election interference is allowed. And I I likely am going to hear from people who say, well, the U.S. Supreme Court weighed in on Gore v. Bush back in 2000. Yeah, the U.S. Supreme Court said to Florida, you have to count the ballots the way your state law says they have to be counted. And no, Al Gore, you don't get to change the rules because you're unhappy with the vote count. They turned Gore down. Why? Because Gore wanted to violate state law. This has been the problem going all the way back to the 2020 election, which was a fraud as far as I'm concerned, because states decided to make changes in their law laws. They could have done it a legitimate way. They could have called a special session of their legislature. They could have said, we want to make a change. There's a reason they didn't, because the people who represent the people of Wisconsin or Georgia or any of the other states where those changes were made as fiat, they simply said, we're going to make the change. Who's going to make the change? The U.S. Constitution says the only body that can change a state's election laws is the legislature of that state, not the governor, not the secretary of state, not the attorney general, not the courts, the legislature. And if they decided the excuse they used was like the excuse for everything else these days, the pandemic. They said, why? There's a pandemic going on. We can't have an in-person poll vote in various states. And that was untrue. There were lots and lots of elections held in the year 2020 before the November general that were held as in-person votes. It wasn't a problem. And yet they needed to, they needed to cheat because they knew that Joe Biden would never win that presidential race, nor did he win the presidential race in 2020. And now the Democrats have decided we've got to cheat a different way. We will cheat by simply locking Donald Trump out of the process. But at the same time, you need to tell yourself this. They're locking you out. They're telling the people of Colorado, you may want to vote for Donald Trump. You may not. And they're also relying on uh, what a cockamamie theory to say that Donald Trump's speech on January 6th, that his actions leading up to January 6th, added up to an attempt to overthrow the government of the United States. And the part of the 14th Amendment they're relying on was written after the Civil War, saying if you were involved in trying to overthrow the United States of America and break the southern states off from the northern states in the Civil War, if you were part of that and you hold elective office, high office, then you're not allowed to run. That's not Donald Trump, not in any way, shape, or form, and I see no chance... Can you imagine the day where the U.S. Supreme Court looks at what Colorado has done today and says, yep, that's okay. We're going to lock somebody out. We're going to tell all you voters, we will not listen to you. You have no vote. So for all the people in the state of Colorado that are being told, you're not allowed to vote for Donald Trump. You know what I think is going to happen in the primary? Assuming the U.S. Supreme Court does not reject this and throw it out completely and i would hope that they do that but assuming they don't i hope the trump voters in colorado show up every last one of them and do a write-in vote in the primary 
Now, that's a fallback. It's a Hail Mary, but it's about the only option you've got if they decide to lock you out as a voter from your own election. Glad to be with you and always glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can always vote in our Twitter poll. The question today, and this has to do with Governor Greg Abbott of Texas yesterday, signing three bills into law. And those bills make it illegal for you to enter the state of Texas from a foreign country illegally. And what is what do those do bills do? They say the state of Texas will treat illegal entry from a foreign country as a state criminal law violation, giving the police the power to enforce the laws that Joe Biden and his administration, including Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary, the things they won't do, Texas will get done. The people of Texas, their representatives and their governor have said it's now a crime in Texas to enter that state from a foreign country without proper legal backup. Come in as a green card. Come in as a visitor. You come in as an illegal alien. You are committing a crime in the state of Texas. So if Joe Biden won't guard our borders, should states enforce the law for them as Texas has done? I would answer that one. Yes, you can answer any way you like at Lars Larson show on X or Twitter. You can also answer on our website at LarsLarson.com. It's brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined a long time ago, and you should too. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better, believe me. Better for you and better for America. Let's go to California and talk to Ron. And if you want to jump in, it's 866-439-5277. Ron, what's on your mind? Well, I'm with you on the Colorado decision. And uh, I used to be a truck driver for, I, I, I drove truck, 18-wheeler, for um, 30 years. Throughout that time, uh, there was talk about the truck drivers doing a strike across across the nation that would shut yep. down this country. It would. <laughs> Excuse me. Now, I think they ought to strike Colorado. Don't take no food, don't take no gas, don't take anything into Colorado whatsoever and make them pay for this. This is ridiculous. There was no June 6th insurrection. January 6th. January 6th, I'm sorry. They enticed those people into coming into the White House. They moved barricades. They opened doors. They enticed them. They entrapped them. And then they attacked them. It was, it, was a, it was a Nancy Pelosi setup, Ron. I think you're right. Nancy Pelosi got a warning from the Capitol Police, from the FBI, that said there's trouble coming on January 6th. And she said, regular order of the day, let it happen. She needed it to fuel and give her a basis for that unconstitutional impeachment. Coming up in a moment, with the festive season in full swing, should we be worried that our holiday fun is going to take a deadly turn? Just listen for five minutes. 
you'll feel better. More with Lars Larson right now. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday. Always glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. I got to tell you something. I'm not going to use myself as an example uh, of uh, the overeating and overdrinking during the happy holidays of Christmas and New Year's. Um, and the reason I'm not going to do that is that uh, type 2 diabetes kind of cured me of that stuff. But I would be w- more than willing to admit that in past years, I mean, go back more than six or seven years ago before I found out I had too much sugar on board. And uh, and I would have been guilty of that uh, at every single holiday. So I'll plead guilty to that as I introduce Dr. Henry Miller, uh, doctor and molecular biologist. He's currently at the American Council on Science and Health. Doctor, welcome back. Good to be with you, Lars, as always. So are the overeating and overdrinking that are kind of legendary at the holidays, are they turning deadly for a lot of Americans? Legendary. Uh, I remember when I was a medical resident, uh, and doing rotations in the emergency room this time of year, we were ready for the onslaught. And people would come in with an irregular heartbeat, shortness of breath, various cardiac symptoms. And it was due to uh, eating too much rich food, high salt food, uh, combined with alcohol, and especially an uh, I was in Boston at the time, uh, cold weather and doing uh, exertion like shoveling, uh, shoveling snow, shoveling <laughs> snow, yep. yeah, uh, or even uh, you know just eating and drinking too much and then going out and deciding you're going to play basketball in twenty degree temperatures. So, do you think we're getting cured of that, or is the problem getting worse? Well, I, I don't do emergency rooms anymore, but I know that the uh, the syndrome, it's known as holiday heart syndrome, still exists and still is is robust um, because uh, it's just human nature to overdo it uh, at this time of year and not to uh, not to moderate your behavior. How do you suppose? Uh, how would you best suggest that people do this? I mean, is it just a lost cause if people are inclined to drink too much? Because the reason I said legendary, Doc, is is that. Over the years, even as a kid, I would hear people say, oh, I stuffed myself on Christmas Day. It was such a great meal. Well, it can be a great meal without being two or three times the size it has to be. But I, but I almost got the sense as a kid that adults loved to show people, I can, I can eat more stuff than you can eat. I can drink more. I can basically go to extremes more than anybody else. And it became almost a, a contest. Uh, to say, hey, this I, I ate more than you did at Christmas dinner. Well, it's just uh, celebratory. So, you know, if you have uh, a cocktail hour or or two or three before uh, a, a big meal, uh, and uh, and then you sit down for for a huge meal, as you say, competing for who can eat uh, the, the, the big turkey leg and the stuffing and so on and so on, and the ham along with it, uh, you're, you're, just, you're just overdoing. One thing I suggested uh, in the article I wrote about this is that uh, you, you need to pay attention a little bit to what you're consuming. So during a cocktail hour, if you're going to have uh, a number of drinks, you might intersperse some non-alcoholic drinks, uh, a Virgin Mary or a ginger ale or, uh, or something like that in between alcohol, alcoholic drinks. Uh, and, 
and at the meal, maybe not have five glasses of wine, maybe three uh, or four would, would get you by. You just have to be conscious of what you're consuming. Now, these days, I always remind myself, and I've had a, I have a friend who's passed away now, but he was one of my hunting partners, and he was, a, he was a medical doctor, and he was a very healthy guy, but he would drink way too much. I mean, drink to the point where he would fall asleep. I don't think he actually passed out, but he did that once at 4th of July, and I said, Doc, you can't do that. If you do that, you, you can't be welcome at our house. I can't take the risk that I'll end up getting you hurt or somebody else hurt. How much responsibility for both the booze side of it and the food side of it belongs to the host or hostess of that gathering? Well, that's difficult, as you know. It depends on your relationship with the person and how malleable uh, the, the person is. Some people are always going to do things to excess. Uh, so uh, it, it's just... It's just good to be a, uh, a conscientious host and friend and to kind of remind people uh, as, as best you can that maybe they ought to take it a little, a little easier, um, especially on the alcohol, but also on uh, high salt foods. And that's particularly Is that really as big a problem? Because I, I, I got to tell you, Doc, I hear uh, conflicting things from both doctors and people not in the medical field who say, oh, the salt stuff is nothing, or the salt stuff is very serious. So who should we believe? Uh, about what in particular, Lord? About salt in particular. Uh, well, you know, we, we, see, uh, we see salt uh, increase blood pressure, uh, increase edema, swelling uh, of, of the limbs. It all conspires. It all puts a, a bigger strain on the heart. Uh, because the, if, if salt raises blood pressure, and it, and it does, then the heart is pumping uh, against a higher pressure, and its output is lower, uh, it's a strain on the heart, and it increases the probability that you're going to have uh, a, an abnormal rhythm or uh, cardiac insufficiency, that is not enough oxygen getting to the heart muscle itself. And, Doc, you mentioned that you don't have the stats. I'm curious, is there any effort in the medical field to try to gather that kind of data? So you could say, well, this year we saw this many people uh, at the holidays with this holiday heart syndrome, you know, this combination of, of characteristics that may end up, you know, putting people in the emergency room. It would seem like those, those numbers might persuade some people, back off, take it easy, and don't get yourself in trouble but uh, does does the medical profession gather that kind of data? Uh, yeah, the federal officials do, and that's why uh, the, the term holiday heart syndrome was coined in 1978, because people uh, realized that they were seeing a spike in uh, admissions with uh, abnormal heart rhythm, uh, cardiac symptoms, heart failure, and hospitalizations as well uh, as a result of uh, these these uh, factors that we've been discussing. Well, not that there's any good time to have that kind of medical malady, but having it come at the holidays when people get together with loved ones and then one of them ends up with a trip to the emergency room, uh, that could change the character of the whole, you know, the whole thing and, and make you, I mean, look, I, my mom died on New Year's Eve. She was a non-drinker, but, you know, we got hit by a, a drunk driver and my mom passed away that night, uh, 1969, you know, on New Year's Eve of 69, heading into 1970. 
that doesn't put a different character on the holidays for me. Um, you know, but but I am reminded that imagine the tragedy. You you get together with family and friends, maybe uh, not that frequently, and then everybody's gathered together, and then somebody ends up going to the emergency room. And imagine the kind of holiday memory that makes going forward. Oh, this is I, I'm, I sympathize with you tremendously, Lars. And this uh, this is generally a bad time in emergency rooms because remember. We're having the usual spike in respiratory illnesses as well. So people are coming in with the flu and with pneumonia uh, and, uh, and with RSV and even COVID these days. So it's a terrible time for emergency rooms. So anything you can do to avoid it, and especially accidents, home accidents, um, uh, ladders, mis- mis- <laughs> mishaps, yeah, mishaps with ladders, uh, with uh, being burned uh, when you're a little tipsy and uh, trying to barbecue or, or cooking. Uh, you just need to be a little bit more prudent than usual this time. Yeah, it's year. funny because I was I was helping. I mean, Tina and I put the Christmas tree up together this year. We usually do. And I was up on the ladder and she didn't like me being on the ladder at all. And and yet I said, OK, I'll make sure I do it very, you know, conservatively, like I try to do everything. So that, because I know I've had friends who have been really badly hurt when they get up on a ladder and they think, ah, I've been climbing ladders my whole life. Well, OK. And don't have a glass of bourbon before you head up there. That's that, Dr. Henry Miller. He's at the American Council on Science and Health, founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology. Coming up in a moment, I want to talk about, well, good guy with a gun. And I also want to talk about something else, and that has to do the bizarre and obscene ways Democrats are showing the their disgusting show. Control. Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you. And if you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's here every single day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. i got a couple of thoughts I want to get off my chest. But first, I want to make sure I say Merry Christmas to my friend Todd Starnes and his entire crew, including Philip. I got... You know, I don't get a chance to talk to Todd all that often, but he put me on his show in Memphis today, and we had a great conversation, and it was far too short. But just thanks to Todd for everything he does. Um, but I wanted to give you a couple of thoughts on something where we got the original word about this on Friday night that this was happening. Uh, this disgusting behavior by a Senate staffer working for, of course, a Democrat, Ben Cardin from Maryland. And it just got me going. So I, I had to just kind of put a couple of thoughts together. Let me tell you this. I think America's political left wing doesn't like America. In fact, for some of them, not all of them, but for some of them, I'd even say it comes to a level of hatred for their own country. And you might wonder, how can they hate their own country? 
And if you hate your own country that much, why don't you just pack up and go someplace better on planet Earth? In fact, it's one of my favorite challenges to throw down for a naysayer who says, oh, America's a terrible place. I go, okay, America's imperfect, just like all Christians are imperfect. Um, but can you tell me a better place on planet Earth, a place that affords its citizens more freedoms and more liberties, protecting your God-given rights through a constitution? In most places on planet Earth, the country may have a constitution, but it's a constitution that grants its citizens' rights. This is outside of America. And you say, do I really want to have the government thinking that my rights come from government? Because anything they can give you, they can also take you away. I live in the best country on the planet, and I say that because it recognizes that the rights of its citizens are God-given. And the only instruction the government gets is where not to mess with people's rights through the Constitution and most particularly through the first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights. So I just have to say this. America's political left-wingers have found inventive and now we know even obscene ways to demonstrate how much they despise this great country. Joe Biden hosts a transgender pride event and some of those invited decide that displaying their bare breasts on the South Lawn of the White House was the right way to celebrate that. Just wrong. Wrong all day long. A new school board member in Virginia takes the oath of office not on a Bible, but on a stack of LGBTQ books from the school library that are so pornographic, I can't describe the contents here on my show without risking a six-figure FCC fine. And the most recent outrage, as I mentioned, a staffer for Democrat Party Senator Ben Cardin, who used a Senate hearing room, that's right, the very same room where Supreme Court justice nominees sit for their confirmation hearings. So this is a place you ought to have some respect for. And what did this staffer use it for? Some stunningly explicit sex with his boyfriend literally on a conference table. I can't be sure, but having seen, I didn't watch much of the video, frankly, it's disgusting. But a conference table that I believe is one of the tables used by senators as they sit in that judiciary hearing room and talk to some of the most significant people in our country. So he's having sex with his boyfriend on this table where U.S. senators sit. In fact, the Babylon Bee jumped that they were joked that they were going to have to use flamethrowers to disinfect the room. And then, to top that off, he didn't just have sex with his boyfriend, his gay boyfriend. He shot a video of it and posted it to the Internet. Oh, yeah, that'll stay secret. It'll only be this careful, you know, controlled group of gay pol political staffers who are on this site. Well, of course it went public. You can't describe that one either on the radio without getting me in big trouble. But graphic. Graphic doesn't even begin to describe or tell the tale. And yes, pun intended. Capitol Police, they're investigating. But you know the rules for the Capitol Police. Unless that staffer was wearing a MAGA hat during that disgusting act, he's not going to face any charges at all. The Randy staffer, who, by the way, I might point out, actually appeared in some of Joe Biden's campaign ads, he got fired for his performance. And he was, and rightly so, he should have been fired. And he promptly played the victim card. And here's a quote from this guy. I love my job and I would never disrespect my workplace. Hmm. Seems like Democrats enjoy a very divergent definition of disrespect.
Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Oh, and then this. Our question of the day, which came in from Colleen. Uh, Lars, I think you stated the issues very well with the Pope's blessing of people living in sin. Uh, we're talking about the fact that the Catholic Church under this crazy Pope has decided that it's going to endorse and even bless couples living together, homosexual couples living together, heterosexual couples not so much. She writes, in plain English, and I'm and very good for a non-Catholic, I was raised Catholic. I'm a Protestant. So part of me wonders if Pope Francis isn't trying to set the Catholic Church up to be one world religion with the people who are running the world. Maybe it's all about money and fame and power. He sure is a worldly Pope, having audiences with Hollywoodies and political elites, I doubt he's trying to save souls. If he were, he wouldn't be smiling in any of the photographs with him. Also, the timing of the release of the fiducia supplicants is interesting to me as it's the fourth week of Advent. The candle-lighted Sunday was pink, the other three are purple, and the week before, most Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. Is the Pope, is he birthing new blessings of the church? That would be exceedingly disturbing. And I'd have to agree with you about that, Colleen. Thank you very much for the email. And this one from Jim Jenkins. Lars, no one in the Middle East, except for the Israelis, has a care for the Palestinian people. Aside from the fact that Hamas members are also Palestinians, the average Palestinian cannot count on his Arab neighbors. Egypt is in the best position to help by letting them come across the border in the Sinai. Saudi Arabia manages to accommodate millions of pilgrims who make the trip to Mecca every year. Why can't Biden get them to manage a camp in Egypt where the international community can help them out? Once Israel cleans out Hamas, the international community can fast-track the rebuild, signed Jim Jenkins. Well, my impression from a distance, I've visited Israel five times in the last 20 years, and I've done my radio show from there. I've got a chance to tour the country and talk to people who are knowledgeable about it. I've talked to Palestinians. I've talked to journalists. Uh, I even got a chance to ask a few questions back in the day of Ariel Sharon, and I, I appreciated that opportunity as well. But nobody wants anything to do, as you say, with the Palestinians. Egypt's already said, we're not taking the Palestinians in. We don't want anything to do with them. And Jordan has said the same kind of thing. Now, what does it tell you when the folks who share both the cultural and religious backgrounds, fellow Arabs, those Arab states are saying, we don't want the Palestinians. You keep them. Now, does that tell you something about how the Palestinians have conducted themselves. I know that a lot of people view them as simply victims of Hamas. The problem is they back Hamas in far too much. Oh, and one other thing I want to mention. Uh, this is a great development. William, he was known as Bill, Bill Gosh, joined the Marine Corps when he turned 18. He went on to serve four combat missions in World War II. He was awarded eight service members, members medals. Eighty years later... Mr. Ghosh had not received them. That is, until his birthday party last week, Ghosh celebrated his 100th birthday at the Knights of Columbus in his hometown of North Tawanda, Tonawanda, New York, where he was presented with the medals that he earned as a very young man. And good for him. And thank you for your service, William God. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show.
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show on this Tuesday and Merry Christmas in advance. But I've got to ask you something. This is uh, this is really troubling me. I know that Joe Biden is running around the country telling everybody who'll listen why in prices are coming down, inflation's coming down, the economy is doing great, and I'm just wondering. How many people out there are so wedded to their membership in the Democrat Party or voting Democrat that they're willing to buy that hogwash that's coming from him when the evidence of their own eyes, when they pull up at the gas pump, and I do that, and I'm stunned by how much I have to pay for gasoline. When I go to the grocery store, Tina and I usually do the family grocery shopping together, uh, and we walk into the store, and it's stunning how much food costs, how much everything costs. And I'm just wondering... There are particular groups in this country, including Hispanic Americans, who are especially hit hard by this. So I thought we'd talk about it with Jose Maya, who's CEO of the Libre Initiative. Uh, Mr. Maya, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Lars. Thanks for having me. So what are Hispanic Americans? I, I don't like hyphen, hyphens either, but I'll use it for a term of art in the, in the, in the service of this interview. But what yeah. are Hispanic Americans saying about all this nonsense that they're being fed by Joe while they see with their own eyes what it really is? You know, Lars, at the end of the day, and that's a great point you just raised about the hyphen, they're, 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 just, they're, seeing, they're feeling the same thing that all Americans are feeling. They're feeling the pain of this terrible economic situation that we're in. Um, you know, the, the Democratic Party for a long time has taken uh, Hispanic or Latino voters for granted, right? And so they've been feeding them this narrative that they have all the solutions and that President Biden is doing a great job and that the Biden economy or Bidenomics in Spanish, they call it the Biden economia. Uh, they come up with a buzzword for everything that somehow that things are better than they were before. But they're not buying it, right? They're not buying it. And we're talking to them. We're engaging with them. And they're telling us that they're incredibly disappointed in, in how, how there's this, the job this administration is doing. Well, and in fact, that there's an opportunity to change it, but it's not going to come unless there's a change in leadership. And, I mean, the latest example I was telling my audience about earlier today is Biden has now announced his new five-year plan for energy, and it's the smallest amount of drilling he could legally allow under the laws that constrain him as as president. Uh, he's, he's done that. And, and I guess for the greenies, it's a big day to celebrate. But for everybody else, all of us who have to put gas or diesel in the tanks of our cars, it's extraordinarily bad news. So this seems like a great opportunity for conservatives to capture more of those Latino votes. Absolutely. And let's talk about the states where these energy jobs are available. States like Texas, New Mexico, right? These are states that the, the, a huge chunk of those jobs and not only the jobs that work in the sector, but the small businesses that support the energy economy have been devastated by the policies of the Biden administration. And Latino voters know that. The people in those communities know that, which is why they're looking for other options. You know, I think the Latino voter at the end of the day shares at its core uh, the, the deep American values of wanting to get ahead in this country, wanting to provide for themselves, not to have government provide for them. But when these kinds of policies come down that eliminate these high paying jobs, a huge sector of the economy gets devastated like the energy sector has by this administration. They feel it, and they understand that you don't have to come to them with any political message. They get it right away. They understand that the policies of this administration and these progressive ideas and, you know, let's call them even socialist ideas at times, are bad for the country and bad for them. 
Well, and I also wonder about this. And so l- let me speak bluntly. I'm talking to Jose Maia, who's CEO of the Libre Initiative, which I'll remind you to mention the website so people can find it. Absolutely. But I- I'm a person of faith, and I don't think it's a stereotype that a great number of Hispanic or Latino Americans are people of faith. They're people about family. And when they see the kind of spectacle, I talked about it a few minutes ago on the show. I said, you've got a, a celebrate pride celebration at the White House a few months ago, and some of the pride participants thought uh, bare breasts were a good way to celebrate on the South Lawn of the White House. And then you had uh, you had uh, you know the school board uh, folks who take an oath not on a Bible but on a stack of LGBTQ books that literally, Mr. Maya, are so graphic that I can't even read the words from them or describe what's depicted in them. And this is aimed at kids uh, because I would get an FCC fine for several hundred thousand dollars for reading that stuff aloud. And then most recently, this gay sex in a Senate hearing room from, again, a Democrat staffer. And I'm just wondering if these people say, I believe in family and faith and doing right by my community. And I, I believe in, in my, you know, my, my church beliefs and everything else. And the Democrat Party behaves like at least the visible parts of it seem to behave like like real i just it's so ugly it's so disgusting as though nobody can do anything too disgusting for the democrats i think all of that is really affecting uh latino voters and we saw it in the last election cycle right in the in the congressional races historic victories in the rio grande valley in in states like arizona districts that were traditionally democrat seats hispanic communities that had his, uh, that had had for gen- for almost one or even two generations democratic representation they flipped why because those voters realized that the party of that member doesn't connect with them on their personal values and so i think that's a big part of the issue the social issues that that we see out there because everyone cares about their children and they want to protect these, their children from some of those those challenges and you know ultimately that's why they're such big supporters of school choice right because if they it, the best thing that they can do is their public school is promoting these ideas that they don't agree with or that doesn't feel right to them in their heart because it doesn't align with their faith, then they should have the flexibility to take that kid to another school. And even if it's a parochial school, right? And that's, for example, what's happening here in Florida now, where I'm based actually in Miami, Florida. Uh, but we need to see that across the country. And this is why Latinos support educational choice at 70%. Across, it cuts across party lines. And at the end of the day, even if those issues weren't the most important ones to them, those values, they are feeling it in their pocketbooks, right? And that's affecting across-the-board people who are trying to get ahead, trying to make it in this country, want to do the right thing, and they're feeling it because this economy is not providing any opportunity for them. No. And and what are, you know they're going to make a last-minute bid. The Democrats in the next 10 months are going to oh, come yeah. out and say, hey, you voted for us before you got to vote us again. Uh, what do you think you're, you're going to hear from them? And how do we counter that? So we are out there in the community, and we're doing a lot of polling. Like right now, in a recent poll that we did, uh, only 48%, actually, uh, only 21% of uh, Latino voters said the economy was doing good or excellent. 48% said it was doing poor. 31% said it was doing fair. That's 79%. That's hard to overcome. So even if they come out with some fancy messages, they like to turn out Hollywood and all these celebrities. You know, they actually, unfortunately, control the major networks in the Hispanic community. But even if they do all that, people are still going to realize that it's a great lie, which is why it's important that we continue to do our job. The Libra Initiative, you mentioned the uh, the website, BeLibra.org. Yeah, BeLibra.org, our social media platforms, we're out there constantly. 
we're doing national TV on some of those networks. We're, we're sending, uh, you know, emails and, and digital content out there, and we want people to engage with us. Um, and, and if you know anyone in the community that's trying to figure it out, tell them to go to BeLeaders.org because we have a lot of not just policy information, but, you know, give them a sense of, of how we can uh, engage with them. We do a lot of community work to bring people in to teach them, sometimes English classes. We do- that is a tremendous idea. That's Jose Maella, the CEO of the Libre Initiative. Mr. Maia, Merry Christmas in advance. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Person should ever have to worry about Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. I know. Lars. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Thomas lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Sunday, Christmas Eve, thousands of New Yorkers are traveling to their families to find and find closed restaurants at rest areas across the state. Now, that is a dimwit Democrat member of the State Assembly in the state of New York, and his name is Tony Simone. And what he's talking about is Chick-fil-A, because believe it or not, folks, every single conservative institution in America is under attack at this point and this is one example of it and i'm going to give you a few examples but just think about all the institutions that have come under attack pregnancy resource centers are literally being firebombed arson being committed they're being ransacked and the fbi turns a blind eye to that i mean you could go into example after example pro-life parents show up with a kid at a pro-life rally and the kid gets assaulted by a woman, dad protects him, and he ends up with an FBI SWAT team on his front porch. And then you've got the Biden DOJ that has declared that anybody who's conservative and white and Christian is on a possible terrorist list. Consider all that, and then let me tell you about what they have in mind in the Empire State, the state of New York, with regard to one particular restaurant that is known for being closed on the Sabbath. But before I get into the details, welcome to the program. If you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's here every single day at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Now, whether you know it or not, the restaurant chain Chick-fil-A. Have I bought a sandwich there occasionally? Yes. Am I a regular once a week or once a month customer? No. Uh, do I own any stock in Chick-fil-A? Do I have any ownership interest? Do I do any commercials for Chick-fil-A? In the interest of transparency, I always admit if I have a dog in the fight. And I don't have a dog in the fight in this case. But I think well of the company because it's a company owned by evangelical Christians and a family. I don't know any of them personally. I've never met any of them. But one of the things they do that is part of their faith is that they stay closed on Sundays. Now. Sunday would be a very popular day for fast food restaurants to be open. When people go to the mall, they go shopping, whatever it is they're doing, no matter what time of year it is, people will say, hey, let's grab a sandwich. You can do that at Taco Bell. You can do it at Burger King. You can do it at McDonald's, but not Chick-fil-A. And why? 
because the owners believe they want their families to be able to stay home, go to church on Sunday if they are believers, and then be able to spend some time with their family. And I think that's laudable. Well, guess what? New York state lawmakers, Democrats, all of them, have said, we are going to go after that institution, Chick-fil-A. Now, what you should understand is that in New York State, and I've only driven a few times in New York State outside of New York City, but when you go outside the city, they have a, a, a fairly decent arrangement when it comes to travelers and rest stops. In a lot of states, if you stop at a rest area, you're lucky to find a piece of grass and maybe a filthy public restroom, uh, oftentimes a very scary place to stop in the middle of the night. But in New York State, they have these travel plazas, they call them. They accommodate trucks. They accommodate cars. They usually have several restaurants available, including all the popular ones I just named, and then some. So when you stop there, you can gas up, you can stretch your legs, you can get a meal, you can, you can walk around, you can take the dog out on the grass, whatever it is you need to do. And Chick-fil-A is one of the restaurants that has that position. I mean, they're just one of the fast food restaurants. But now, because Chick-fil-A is closed on the Christian Sabbath, all of a sudden, people like Tony Simone have decided, we don't like this. I mean, I looked up the travel plazas this morning just to double check, and they they include any number of other fast food joints that are open. In fact, Babylon B was joking that Chick-fil-A should open up a Seventh-day Adventist version of Chick-fil-A called uh, Sunday Filet. As Sunday Chick-fil-A and, and be closed on Saturday and open on Sunday. I mean, the Babylon Bee hit it right on the head. But this Tony Simone knucklehead, he wants to pass a law in the state of New York that requires every single uh, fast food joint that is, uh, that is in one of those travel plazas must be open seven days a week without regard. And they know that what they're doing, without regard to the faith of the owners of that restaurant, What they're doing is they're saying, we're going to deliberately attack this restaurant. I'm sure that Chick-fil-A gets a lot of business from people who stop at these travel plazas in the state of New York. But extend this out to the rest of the country. At what point are you going to have people decide that the government has a right to tell you and, and, and I've given you one example already this week, uh, Starbucks. Starbucks, which is owned by a bunch of liberals, but Starbucks is a company that decided to close down about uh, 20, uh, 24, about two dozen of their many, many tens of thousands of locations around the world. And why did they close them down? Because they're in parts of cities that have become so dangerous uh, that they said these restaurants are going to close down. We'll figure out what to do with them later. Well, now the government, the National Labor Relations Board, is coming in telling them, You can't close that business. The government tells you you have to keep your business open. That's one example. Then you've got New York saying, let's pass a law and tell every fast food joint that does business in these travel plazas, you must be open even on the Sabbath, even if it violates your closely held religious beliefs. And and the, the end result of all that is the government decides to tell business, you must do things our way. And when the government is being run by political liberals, and in the state of New York, the assembly is populated with liberals, and so is much of the U.S. Congress and much of the U.S. government, they've decided that they're going to tell business what to do. And if it comes to the safety of customers, I can understand that. But when it comes to telling a business you must stay up on the Sabbath, that's crazy. And apparently Tony Simone, in an interview he did with a reporter about this, he didn't even realize Chick-fil-A has a very, very long-term lease with the state of New York. Take a listen to the contract. Well, the, the throughways are, are meant to serve New York travelers first. 
And I think it's ridiculous that you are able to close on Sunday, one of the busiest travel days of the week. Of the week, except for this. They apparently have a 33-year lease to operate those fast food joints on the uh, New York Expressways at those travel plazas. So despite the fact that they have that, the Democrats are out there. Tony Simone has been trying to say, no, this is just about accommodating travelers. But let me read one of the other quotes he said in a statement, because this makes it clear exactly what's motivating him to go after this company because of the faith beliefs of its owners. Quote, Not only does Chick-fil-A have a long, shameful history of opposing LGBTQ rights, it simply makes no sense for them to be a provider of food services in busy travel plazas, and a company that by policy is closed on one of the busiest travel days of the week should not be the company that travelers have to rely on for food services. And let me point out the deep irony. He's talking about the private sector. The private sector accommodates its customers. What does the government do? The government does says, if you want to do business with a government office, you better show up somewhere between 9 and 4 o'clock, Monday through Friday. We don't serve any customers, citizens, the rest of the week. So the folks who represent government are criticizing the private sector for actually taking into account their faith beliefs, while the government simply says, do business with us during business hours, Monday through Friday, or you can't do any business at all. Glad to be with you. Always glad to take your calls. You've got the Lars Larson Show. So you don't have to. Bringing the political heat. He's Lars Larson. As the cost of Christmas has climbed so high, even the head of the Biden crime family finds it expensive. Over a billion, three hundred million, trillion, three hundred million dollars. Merry Christmas from the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you and always glad to take your phone calls and emails. I frequently warn you about some of the activities of George Soros. George Soros, in my mind, is one of the worst things that has ever happened to the United States because he's chosen to spend his massive wealth to be able to get, well, say, prosecutors elected who refuse to prosecute and to promote other kinds of things like illegal entry to the United States. But I thought I'd check some of my assumptions with Scott Shepard, who's a fellow at the National Center for Public Policy Research and director of the Free Enterprise Project. Scott, it's good to have you back, and Merry Christmas in advance. Merry Christmas to you, and always great to be with you, Lars. So tell me this, uh, is George Soros as bad as I think he is? Oh, he sure is. He absolutely is. I mean, I think we we talked together about George a few weeks ago, yep. and uh, and we 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 questioned uh, at the end of that conversation in the column I'd written. I noted, you know, he he uh, is worried about Chairman G over in China. He thinks he's the the worst thing that could happen for open society, which is what he calls his plans for the future. And we wondered about. 
you know, they seem like they're doing the same thing. Why would G be uh, a particular problem for Soros? And I think I've come up with the answer. Here's what I okay, think. So okay, what because, think, because that's uh, the reason, I mean, if I'm understanding your point right, the reason he's wor- uh, that anyone would worry about Xi is that China is a society that t- treats its own people like chattel property. You know, they tell them what to do. They can lock them up. They can lock them down. They can weld them inside their apartment buildings if they decide it's necessary. I mean, they do just about every nasty thing to their own population. You'd think it'd be right up George Soros Alley, wouldn't it? Well, exactly. And that's my new theory. My theory is that he thinks that she is such a threat because she seems intent on starting a new Cold War. And what that would do is set. Uh, the United States, the the uh, Western democracies, back to thinking about the evils of authoritarianism, right? <laughs> it would set up the Cold War dynamic again, where we would re-embrace liberty because we'd be faced with the the horrible alternative. What he wants, Soros wants, is uh, for for somebody like the the uh, Jimin or the other previous ones who were dictators but weren't so aggressively dictatory as to uh, uh, shock us out with Soros's help on our slide into into the Gomorrah of authoritarianism. The threat from Soros's point of view is that Xi is being threatening and therefore closing off his goal of sliding us into a Chinese type situation. Remember that his dear friend Klaus Schwab, the idiot who runs the World Economic Forum. Yeah, the guy who runs WEF, who dreams of a, a, a new world order, and not only that, but some of his top lieutenants have said, in the future you will own nothing and you will be happy. Which, which strikes right at the heart of capitalism. If nobody owns anything, then that means by default the government owns and controls all of it and can basically call the tune for citizens to dance to. Yeah, and then that's the Chinese system. And Klaus Schwab went on Chinese television and lauded the Chinese system and its, its draconian measures against uh, the, the, the fake uh, pandemic or the overblown pandemic, et cetera, et cetera. And he had the goal on Chinese television to say, you know, you've got a great system here. We always have to be careful in forcing systems on other nations. But this is a good one. In other words, he thinks that he has to be careful about it, but it's totally within his remit to force the Chinese model on other and free nations. And so between him and Soros, I think we have it exactly clear. Xi's a threat to Soros, not because... He's a, an opponent of liberty, but because he's such a wild card that he's going to put us on our guard. Well, and that I would imagine that both Klaus Schwab and George Soros love the idea of a social credit score like China has 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 uh, has pioneered. I guess you can use it that for a, a negative development. But they've they've said we're going to control how people behave. And if you behave badly, if you get speeding tickets or jaywalking tickets, or if you join the wrong political organizations or speak out on the wrong issues, we take points away from your social credit score. And a lot of Americans, when I ask them about this, I said, have you heard about this? They say, well, no, not really. I don't know what it is. I said, imagine if you had uh, your debit card and you said, I think I'll fly down to see my, uh, you know, my sister or my brother. And at the airport or when you try to book the ticket, it says, I'm sorry, your social credit score is too low. 
and you inquire and say to your friends, what, what do I need to do to improve it? Well, you better quit the NRA. You better stop uh, writing letters to the editor. You better stop doing all those things because the government doesn't approve of them. And if you don't stop doing those things, then uh, the government will take away your ability to travel. It'll take away your other freedoms. You may miss out on that next promotion or that next raise. Or when you and your family want to buy a new house, they'll say, I'm sorry, but, you know, you've got a bad social credit score. Your mortgage rate is going to be double the usual rate because the government doesn't approve of you. And you say, well, that would never happen. Well, Scott, you and I have both seen a lot of that would never happen things actually come to fruition the last three years, haven't we? No, absolutely. But, but you know, that it, they're not even really hiding that anymore. The World Economic Forum, the Weppers, as you say, they've already called for it. And they've called for carbon uh, passports so that they can still fly their, their private jets to the top of the world in the middle of the winter to stay at a luxury hotel that's fully heated and eat Wagyu beef. Uh, but the rest of us will get maybe a couple of flights a year to start. I'm sure that'll be cut down because what they want is uh, us to be controlled by, by the seizure of our finances. And of course, not being able to use cash anymore, having everything go through a, uh, a fed denominated digital currency. The, the, the world economic forum is in favor of all of this. Uh, George Soros and his ridiculously named open society groups are in favor of all of this. They absolutely want to control us entirely. And then you've got Yuval Hariri over there, uh, one of the, the, the chief lunatics, yep. who has said that, that we have billions too many useless people on the globe. Now, does, I mean, does that, that phrase that seem out. familiar, uh, Scott, from history? Oh, my goodness. It's, it's, it's appalling. It, this is all, uh, well, I mean, Klaus Schwab's dad was a, a, uh, a decorated Nazi. Yep. And so why not? You know, Apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Let me ask you this, though, Scott. One of the concerns I've got is we have people on the Republican side of the aisle. And I know you don't get specifically into partisan politics, but I worry about people who are now seeking office, not anybody in particular at this point. But if they've decided, oh, I want to be one of these young leaders with WEF or I want to be associated with these other things and they're conservatives, should we be concerned that if they actually took that stuff to heart, that they're like planted moles, that they're saying, yeah, I'm going to seek, I'm going to seek the, the presidency or I'll seek a Senate seat or a House seat. Uh, and I've got all these things that got, got put in me back when I was a young leader under WEF and that they're going to keep them, you know, hidden in their hearts until they get to a position of power and then use them. Should we be worried about that? Oh, well, of course we should. I mean, just on a, on a slightly smaller level, BlackRock and the other um, investment houses that want to keep pretending that ESG is neutral and is good for business and all of this nonsense because they're weffers themselves. They've gone out and hired legions, legions of Republican uh, lobbyists in the state to try to get the Republicans that are now finally standing up to ESG to uh, turn back the page to, to oh, corporate leaders are, are on the side of Freedom Song, even though they know it's a lie. 
yep. by, um, you know, all, all of the, the strategies you're talking about the World Economic Forum using. That's where they're going. Scott Shepard is at the National Center for Public Policy Research. Scott, it's always a pleasure. Director of the Free Enterprise Project. We'll be back in a moment. Glad to get your calls. 866-HEY-LARS. I'm not afraid of social media. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and all the other social media. And tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. Lars Larson Show. Only one. is drawn in the sand. He's the one that crosses it. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you and always glad to get to your calls. Uh, I'll do that in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers always go first at 866-439-5277. Emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And I want to turn to Timothy Head, who is Executive Director of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. Timothy, uh, welcome to the program and Merry Christmas in advance. Absolutely. Merry Christmas to you. And uh, and we are wrapping up a, an eventful 23 and bracing ourselves, I think, for 24. Yeah, I don't think any of us can imagine with all the crazy things that have happened in 23 what could be coming in an election year. But let me ask you this. I want to ask you a somewhat political question, somewhat practical question. We've got people who, uh, you know, who are in prison right now, the, the very the few that are actually prosecuted, convicted and actually sent to prison because the vast majority of criminals are not uh, convicted, are not sent to prison. But I'm wondering whether or not these liberal criminal justice policies that I thought would drive voters to the right side of the ballot uh, almost two years ago, well, a year, more than a year ago in, in the 22 election. Uh, and, and I was disappointed. But I'm wondering if people are now seeing the result of all these liberal criminal justice policies and whether or not that might just change the direction of this next year's vote. Well, you know, there, there's a there's kind of a, a, a bundle of, of issues that are kind of packed in there. And, and I think that that, uh, you know, we're definitely seeing a lot of the, the kind of jailbreak type of stuff that we see, you know, kind of. Uh, prosecutorial uh, discretion run amok, you know, in, in the New Yorks and the L.A.s and the Chicago's of the world. I think a lot of the places, place, uh, people in those places are, are definitely uh, looking for major, major alternatives. Uh, and then, uh, you know, ironically, you've got this, uh, this kind of other end of the spectrum that's not d- discussed uh, probably enough uh, that, uh, you know, even, even people like Donald Trump, you know, when he was in office, uh, had a, a fairly measured approach of giving people a second chance if they've kind of rehabilitated and gone through programming, and uh, and a lot of of, uh, of minority populations have responded really really well to kind of that nuanced um, kind of uh, uh, measured approach. So the so the jailbreak stuff people are rejecting, 
But the nuanced, smart approaches, I think, like uh, like Trump's approach with the First Step Act and a couple of other things, uh, interestingly, are actually bringing a lot of minorities, especially um, African Americans, uh, to the table in, in pretty thoughtful ways. So it's it's a, it's kind of a, an interesting blend of things that are happening right now. Well, and it's interesting to me because the numbers, Tim, and you know these numbers too. While we have a disproportionate number of people of color in this country who commit crimes, their victims are, I, I think, close to ninety percent when it comes to murder. The people who get murdered by people of color uh, tend to be other people of color. So minority populations that are law-abiding citizens are the are the ones who get beat up the most by the crimes of those people that the left seems most most uh, you know anxious to excuse. That's exactly right. You know, one of the, the kind of uh, uh, misconceptions is that, uh, I don't know, you've got like these drive-by shootings or something like that that are happening across the country. Of course, there are such things as drive-by shootings, but most violence, uh, uh, interestingly enough and sadly enough, is actually in local neighborhoods and frequently even with relationships. Over 90% of violent crimes are committed against people that the, the perpetrator knows. They're not random, you know, people breaking in and and, uh, you know, just kind of uh, unloading shells places. Uh, they're normally domestic violence, uh, you know, uh, things, uh, kind of complicated situations like that. So you're exactly right. Whenever you kind of, uh, um, if you don't, if you completely ignore certain uh, kind of swaths of, uh, of, of uh, criminality, uh, you penalize the, the neighborhoods that are actually the most susceptible. Yeah, and, and, and minority voters are waking up to that. Do you think that any Republicans have the uh, uh, the guts, if you will, to actually go out and point that out and say, listen, when we stop, you know, when society starts turning loose uh, criminals because of their skin color, because of racial injustice or whatever, the folks that are going to go back and hit the hardest are going to be other people of color in America, which means the result of those policies is going to be felt most strongly in minority communities and and among law-abiding citizens that and like you you mentioned the drive-by shootings when a when a, a drug gang that's run by by people of color they aren't all but but you know there's a disproportionate share and they decide they've got a beef with another gang and they do a drive-by shooting the the, ba- the the guy they're trying to get who's in the gang uh may may get shot but a bunch of his neighbors may get shot as well law-abiding citizens who had nothing to do with what was going on there that's exactly right, which is, is uh, ironically, you know, I think people kind of uh, uh, sarcastically or sardonically, you know, refer to uh, the 2020 as the quote unquote summer of love, you know. Uh, <laughs> well, one of the kind of uh, the thick ironies and sad ironies is um, that while uh, Black Lives Matter in an extremely partisan exercise was calling for, you know, police to be defunded, Ironically, again, uh, um, uh, uh, populations in, in the most urban areas, especially mothers and grandmothers in, the, in those most urban areas in Chicago and New York, were saying, no, it's the opposite. We don't, we don't want less police or defunded police. We actually want more police. We want the right police. You know, we want responsible professional police, but we want more police. And ironically, that's actually one of, the, one of our, our arguments at Faith and Freedom Coalition is if we can, if we can um, kind of – uh, focus or target policing in uh, in most vulnerable communities and especially in most vulnerable zip codes, uh, a stronger police presence, as long as they're responsible and well-trained, um, it actually has has a, a an excellent effect on criminology uh, in those neighborhoods. So, so you actually want a stronger presence, uh, not a not a lighter or lesser presence.
No, and in fact, Tim, I, I'd mentioned the, the one politician who I think that brought that summer of love nonsense to the fore was the f- now former mayor, a liberal lady named Jenny Jerkin in Seattle, who declared, oh, we're going to have a summer of love. And you say, hold on a second. And she had part of her whole city taken over uh, by the Antifa BLM crowd, the, uh, you know, the, the chop zone or the Chaz zone, as they called it. And they set up their own autonomous zone for about six weeks. And one of the first things Antifa and BLM did was go out and illegally arm people and declare them to be the new policing of that area and so you say so the very people who want to get rid of the police the first thing they did after they take over an entire community by force is set up their own police except no due process no judges no juries no none of that and no rules at all well look i mean the 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 kind of harsh reality for for people to live in the real world is that human conflicts uh, while, while unfortunate, is is a reality. It's not just an American problem. It's not a 2023 or 2024 problem. Uh, this is existence, uh, has existed literally since Cain and Abel. And, um, and so we have to have a system in place to resolve that conflict, uh, both on kind of the contractual business side, the financial side, and then also on the violent, you know, crim, crim, uh, criminal side. And so um, we, we, this is not a situation where you can just kind of like, uh, wave some magic wand and say we're all going to get along and uh you know uh we're not going to have any prisons anymore and, and no police uh and and, but, and the, the the thick irony is you know exactly like you said as soon as people are are, are kind of uh, parachuted in and, and are able to uh to list to to live or, or control certain areas they immediately realize oh my gosh like some people don't do what I tell them to do. You know, when, when the Topper chop Chaz kind of took over, they were like, wait a minute, but the 30 of us that are in charge, but the other 8,000 people here aren't doing what we tell them to. Uh, and so immediately they control and actually enforce uh, order. Uh, so it, it's just a human dynamic. It's a human reality. And so this is the reason why we believe that we have to find a way to get this right, or at least better. Um, you know, it may not ever be perfect, but I think we can continue to do better. Yeah. Uh, but still you know, kind of uh, 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 respect or honor uh, our systems that are in place. That's what it has to be. That's Timothy Head, Executive Director of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. Tim, thanks very much. Uh, back in a moment, we'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277 on the Lars Larson Show. This is You can't fix stupid. Stupid is forever. But you surely can vote them out. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I gotta tell you something. I want to talk about Jeffrey Epstein for a moment, then I'll get to your phone calls. Because you know who Epstein was. I mean, he's dead. I think he was murdered rather than committing suicide. He was in custody. He was supposedly being watched and monitored. And yet and still, he managed to commit suicide, allegedly. His own attorney said that that day, the day he committed suicide, he was talking to them about his plans, his expectation. He was going to win his court case. I mean, he was a thoroughgoing scumbag. As far as I'm concerned, one of the enduring mysteries of our age 
is how a longtime convicted pedophile managed to traffic in children, especially girls, and how a man with connections to the rich and powerful, names like Gates, I mean, top politicians, top people in money, who stayed in touch with him even after his convictions, his earlier convictions for pedophilia. Uh, for, for child trafficking, how he managed to keep doing what he was doing after so many of those who befriended of him knew of his convictions. And then he dies in custody, allegedly by suicide, despite evidence to the contrary. And now, guess what's going to happen? We've been forewarned that court documents are going to be released by a Manhattan federal judge who has ordered unsealing of documents, including the names of 170 people with ties to Jeffrey Epstein. Now, some of those are former employees. Some of those are victims. And Judge Loretta Preska uh, ordered yesterday that they release these documents uh, in the since-subtle defamation lawsuit that Virginia Roberts Jeffrey, who is one of Epstein's accusers, brought against Ghislaine Maxwell back in 2015. Under that ruling, dozens of individuals previously known only as Jane Doe's or John Doe's in various court filings linked to the suit, according to the New York Post, will likely be identified when the materials uh, tied to them are unsealed in full. Now, what I'm interested in is how many of those people are still in positions of power, either financial power or political power. That is going to be fascinating. To your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Let me go first to Dave. Hey, Dave, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Yes, uh, earlier in the show you had... Uh uh, kind of quoted uh, President Reagan as, uh, we are one generation away from ruin, which uh, makes sense to me. I also want to say, though, that I'm not a naysayer. You didn't call me that, and that's good. I'm not, by any means. But uh, continuing that thought, um, then you said, uh, this may be the generation right now that uh, is that generation of ruin. Well, um, I, I thought about that, and it occurred to me that uh, it may be the previous generation because of the uh, the because of the uh, professors in our universities who are teaching this generation uh, to uh, belly up to the terrorists. Well, so don't don't leave out the public school teachers either, Dave, it. because I think if the university professors deserve some blame for indoctrination, would you agree that public school teachers and the unions that drive them have also been involved in that? Yes. Okay. I'm sure. So that may identify the guilty parties, but how do we fix that? <laughs> well, I'm I'm sorry. I, I don't have much say over those uh, educators. <laughs> No, oh, and it also, it also says something, I, I think, really critical about families. Because when you went to school, if one of your teachers fed you a bunch of liberal claptrap, had your parents prepared you so that you would say, nah, that's, that's nonsense, I'm not going to believe that, even if it came from a teacher, and no, normally kids are told to respect their teachers and what they say, but would you have known to say, or maybe even to talk to mom and dad about it? The teacher says, you know, that we should learn about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the teacher says that boys can become girls and girls can become boys. At the very least, would you have talked about that with your parents? Well, 
uh, I went to school so much longer ago than those kind of things. Back then, we quoted the uh, Pledge of Allegiance and that <laughs> kind of thing. So I, I'm not really the one to answer that question either. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, but all I'm saying is that these days, no, I'm, I'm not I'm sure the kids. I'm not sure the kids go home and tell their parents. Some of them do clearly because we've talked I to see. some of the parents yeah. you know who say yeah my kids being fed this bunch of garbage came home told me which is smart mom and dad said no they're not going to do that and they, they and they actually objected to what the teacher was teaching uh, sadly we don't have enough kids who are doing that and enough parents who are standing up to object let's go to alex hey alex welcome to the lars larson show you told the producer you wanted to talk about something about the auto walkouts yeah, the auto lockouts that apparently they passed uh, uh, just recently in uh, in the Congress and Senate House. And uh, if they get, I, I'm pretty sure they get. I know Thomas Massey was against it, and, and he's trying to uh, uh, pass. Well, you're talking about the so-called kill switches, right? Yes, the kill switch. That's well, ex except when you say the Congress, it wasn't the Congress. This was Joe Biden's doing through the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. That's part of the deep state that Donald warned us about. They said, we're going to have these new requirements for automobiles. But that didn't get voted on by Congress. It got pushed through by those in the bureaucracy, people we don't know, people we didn't elect, people we can't remove from office. That's why the deep. That's why Trump said the deep state was so dangerous because yeah. they put that in there. And what they said first, and I think it's only a starting point, and it's not a smart one, is that they're going to require. I think after 2026, every car will have to have a passive system that monitors you, the driver, and then your car, the chip, the silicon chip in your car, will decide is Alex okay to drive. And the car can itself decide to lock you out, not lock you out of the car, the body of the car, but turn the car off and it won't turn on because the silicon chip has, has determined that you're not uh, fit to drive, you know, because of drugs, because of anything else. And But from that, you could easily go to a system where the government could literally sideline your car and say, okay, then we're going to turn all those cars off and uh, we'll do it remotely. And, and that's well within reason if, if they put this system in. And we should push back hard against it. The problem is we can't do it through Congress unless the Congress is willing to pass new laws and limit what national highway traffic safety can do. I see. Yeah. Well, I, I know it, it goes beyond. They're using the, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the question of being um, inebriated as, as a, as a as a push for that, but as it goes deeper than that, like you just said, it goes into insurance qualification, who's in your car, how far you went, where you went. I mean, it'll track everything uh, from yep. what I understand. Yeah, and that's exactly where they're headed. And would you trust that that chip knows the difference? If, say, you go out and you get assaulted by somebody who beats the daylights out of you and mugs you, and then you crawl into your car and, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of a, you're, you're kind of been beaten up badly, and your car decides, oh, I'm not going to let you drive away, you appear to be intoxicated, when in fact, you're just the victim of a mugging or a rape or an assault of some kind. It's crazy. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show.